If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to turn to Psalm chapter 139 this morning. Psalm 139. It's not the only place we're going to be. We're going to jump around a little bit, so I hope you have your copy of God's Word in front of you. Now, you can follow along on the screen as well, Uh, but we're going to continue a series that we started last week entitled, Did God Really Say? And through the month of February and even a little bit into the month of March, we're going to directly address some questions we have that our culture especially asks about whether God speaks on issues or not. This really kind of came about as uh, I got more and more brokenhearted over over a phenomenon recently called progressive Christianity. Have you heard of progressive Christianity in here? Anybody heard of that? A few of you. Most of you probably haven't heard the term, but have seen it unfold in many churches. And that is this idea that that as humans continue to progress through history, their religion, even their Christian faith, evolves with them. So it changes a little bit. As we have more understanding about people, We have more of an understanding on how people need to interact with God. And can I tell you flat out, I don't have to do a whole sermon about that. I can just very quickly share with you that progressive Christianity is completely opposite of everything the Bible teaches about the rock-solid, firm nature of our faith in Christ. We do not believe we have a faith that is evolving. We believe we have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in this idea of progressive Christianity, we come up with all these reinterpretations of the Bible. And we start asking, does God really speak to those issues, or does he speak to them differently somehow? Do we see God speaking in such a way in the Old Testament, say, that that applied to the Old Testament, but now that we have a better understanding, what, what we want to do is reinterpret what God really meant, even in through the New Testament. And so these questions really really beg us to ask, does God really speak? And so this morning, we're going to ask the question, did God really say that life begins at conception? And I'll share with you that the answer might surprise you a little bit. This Friday, January 29th, last Friday, I'm sorry, January 29th was the 2021 March for Life because of a pandemic uh, that we're in the midst of even still. It was a virtual event, so you could go online and watch uh, speakers share about the biblical truth that every unborn child is made in the image of God and deserves every right that a birthed human being has. And they shared scriptures, and they shared devotionals, they shared stories of redemption, they shared stories of inspiration, and, and it, was, it was different, but it was a great stance for the unborn. This last Sunday, actually it would have been January 24th, was technically considered Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I put it on pause because I knew this message was coming up, and, and I'm reminded of an article I read several years ago by, uh, by Dr. Russell Moore. And it was, it was entitled, Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And you can go look up the article for yourself. It's very well written and it, it's heartbreaking. And his answer is that he does not hate sanctity of human life. He hates that we have to single out a day where we say things we shouldn't have to say. Where, where we, we have to say things like, Mothers should not kill their babies, and fathers should not abandon their families. We have to say things like every human life, regardless of race, gender, 
ethnicity, cultural background is equal in the eyes of God. We have to say things that should be common sense to us. In this sermon, I, I come out with a similar mindset. I, I hate preaching this sermon. Not because it doesn't need to be spoken, but because I long for a day when we understand how God has created us all in his image. So we're going to look at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 together, talk a little bit about that, and try to answer this question. Did God really say that life begins at conception, and what does that mean for us as we live that out? Let's read together, starting in verse 13. It says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well my frame was not hidden from you when i was being made in the secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them psalm 139 really is a, a powerful picture of how god values an unborn life but it brings me back to this question. Did God really say life begins at conception? And I want to be perfectly transparent. Last week, we preached a message that said it is dangerous to add things to the Word of God that are not there. And I want to share very clearly with you this morning that the Bible does not give us a definite point at which life begins. Can we, can we say that fairly? Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe it. That doesn't mean there's not other things we'll talk about. But let's not add to the Bible what is not there. It does not say, and once uh, a sperm and egg are fertilized, you have life. Forgot this was a family worship day. Parents, you get to explain that one when you get home. <laughs> the Bible doesn't give us the point in time, the punctual place. This is life and this is not life. This is a group of cells and this is made in God's image. It doesn't tell us that specific point in time, but it does resoundingly share with us multiple places all throughout God's word, different stages that we know life exists, different stages of development that we understand are created in God's image. And without a shadow of a doubt, there is no way you can read through the Bible and argue the case that an unborn child is not made in the image of God. The Bible makes it very clear. Do I know when it starts? I don't. Does the Bible tell me when it starts? It does not. But what it does tell me is that child inside a mother is made in God's image, and that is clear. I would actually argue that life does not begin at conception. Now, don't throw things at me yet. I would argue that life actually begins, your, your created in the image of God begins long before that. Jeremiah 1.5 is, is the reason why I would say that. And it says, before I formed you in the womb, before you existed in the womb, before you were in your mother's womb, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This verse is God telling Jeremiah, before conception, I had a purpose and a plan for you. My vision and my will was already in play even before you were in your mother's womb. I would argue that your life and my life were conceived and created in the mind of God and purpose before any of that happened. So do I believe life begins at conception? If we're answering this at point blank, the Bible does not clearly state. The Bible seems to indicate your life 
And your image of Godness was created before conception. It tells me every point of your development, you were in the image of God and valued. What can we glean from the Bible on this? Can we just take a pastor's word for it or maybe pull one verse? Or, or can we dig a little deeper? And I, I want to share with you four things about, about this idea of the unborn that I think is very important to note in Scripture. First is this. An unborn child is created by God. An unborn child is created by God. Think back to Genesis chapter 2 when God is forming man and he intricately puts his hands in the dirt and clumps it into a shape of a human being. And he breathes life into it. The rest of creation he speaks and is made, but, but when God creates humanity, it's personal. We talked last week about how, how as Moses is retelling the story of the creation of humanity, he uses God's personal name, Yahweh, because it's such an intimate creation when God creates man. I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, you being made in the image of God were formed personally by your Creator. Every unborn child is created by God. That's all throughout Psalm 139, verses 13, 14, 15, and, and even 16. Let's look at 13 through 15 again and just, just highlight a few words. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully Made. This is an intimate creation. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. These are not words of God spoke and it happened. These are words of God's hands all over your life. Every child in the womb has an intimate connection to God building and creating and putting his image on them. Every unborn child is a unique creation by God. You can add, if you're taking notes, it's not just a part of God's creation, it's a personal creation. Every unborn child is personally created by God. You know, we don't get any details on how God created the platypus. We have no details. What he was thinking with a duck bill and it laying eggs, but it's a mammal and it's crazy stuff. We don't have any clue why God created a seahorse the way he does. Where the seahorse eventually actually takes the eggs from the mother and implants them and, and the male seahorse gives a live birth to babies. What was God thinking when he decided to do that? We don't have any clue. Nobody has told us how God created a Venus flytrap, right? a plant that eats meat. We don't know anything about it. We don't have any details on how God created anything else in the universe other than he spoke. But you know what? When it talks about the creation of every human being, God gives us a personal look. God forms you intricately with his hands. Out of nothing, he made you and he stamped his image on you. Every unborn child is personally and intimately created by God. But secondly, we find in Scripture that God not only personally creates them, He protects them. An unborn child is actually protected by God. One of the things I like to do, especially in this series, is look for other people's points of view. I love to, to Google things, to, to see what other people think, and, and there's a lot of articles out there about a progressive understanding of the sanctity of life. Right? They, they would say the mother's right to choose, or 
uh, or pro-healthcare mother, however they would phrase it. There's a lot of things out there. But what I found was over and over and over again, they pointed to one particular passage of Scripture. I just giggled every time I read it. From, from mainstream news articles to lesser blogs to rants from progressive pastors to whatever it may be, they always came to Exodus chapter 21. And I giggled because that's the exact passage that I read to find this truth that God protects the unborn child. Let me go ahead and give you a background. If you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, your translation may look a little bit different. Uh, Basically, what's happening here is Moses is giving a set of laws. He's received the Ten Commandments, but he's expanding on them over the next couple of chapters, sharing uh, with the people, and God is sharing with, with Moses, particularly, what is right and what is wrong. And he comes to a place where two guys are fighting with each other and strike a pregnant woman. What are you supposed to do? And all of these progressive interpretations are reading an English translation, and maybe yours does, that talks about if you hit the woman and she miscarries. And so I want to I read the translation I have and talk to you a little bit about what this word is. I promise I'm not giving you uh, Hebrew words this morning. We're going to give you Hebrew meanings, okay? Let, let's read Exodus chapter 21. This is a beautiful picture of God's protection. Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out. If you have some translations, it'll say, so that she miscarries. Put a pin in that. I want to come back to that. So that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay the judges as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. There's this idea of two men fighting, and and in the process of fighting, they strike a pregnant woman, and your translation may say, and she miscarries. This is what was pointed to article after article, blog after blog. See, if there's a miscarriage and the woman is not harmed, it's a fine. Just pay a fine and move on. Now, I won't get into the Hebrew words, basically because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Instead, I'll trust people who are Hebrew scholars. This phrase does not mean, in Hebrew, miscarry. It literally means to expel or to come out. When you understand the actual meaning of the word, if this woman gives birth early and the child survives and is fine, there is no death, there is no loss of limb or sight or damage, there's still a penalty that needs to be paid for your fighting and your your negligence. But if there is harm, And here's how we know it specifically means to the baby. If there is harm, God tells Moses, you pay life for life. If that baby dies, there's a death penalty on the person who did that. If that baby is blind, you're to to ask for recompense that that would be eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. God is saying that baby that was innocent and a victim is to be avenged for because he's created in my image. But we know this very clearly because it's not just right here, but a few verses earlier, God says a similar thing to you and I who are already been born. What happens when a life is taken? What is the penalty for a human life created in God's image? Well, in verse 12 of chapter 21, it tells us, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Right? There, there's this idea that if you take life, your life is demanded. 
The value of the unborn child has the same value as the born man or woman. God offers a specific protection. He says, I want to make it clear that that unborn is worth every bit in life as the the born. That individual who, who is killed after living 30 years does not deserve more recompense or, or more punishment than, than the one who kills the, the unborn child. God tells us clearly in Scripture that he has a special protection for all life, any life, and that includes the life of a, an unborn child in the mother's womb. We find then that, that the truth throughout Scripture is that God values life from conception all the way until death. And, and actually, that, that phrase, till death, probably isn't fair beyond death, but let's talk about our human lives here. God values life from conception until death. There is no point in your life that you lose value in God's eyes. It doesn't matter whether you, you are young or old, whether you are smart or challenged, whether you are from a certain ethnic background, whether you move to a different country, it doesn't matter whether you are, are someone who is strong in the faith or someone who's learning in the faith. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. God values your life. And he begins valuing that life very early on. That's why in verse 16 of Psalm 139, we see that God has given your life purpose. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In the womb, you were given purpose. God looked, and he numbered your days. He wrote down his will for your life. He gave you meaning from the very beginning. Early on, that unborn child may not seem to many in our culture, to be much more than a clump of cells. But you know, God has a book. God has a document where he has written down his purpose for that clump of cells. There's value there. There's humanity there, and there's purpose. We find this very strongly in in this idea of God creating man at the beginning, Genesis 1.27. This is a verse that if you've not memorized and, and you're into memorizing verses, memorize Genesis 1.27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This idea of the, the image of God is what makes you special. Apart from the rest of creation, God has stamped his own image on you. And he did so even while he was forming you in the womb. His plans were there for you. He's given you a purpose. And according to Genesis 1.27 and the, the rest of the understanding of the image of God, God has not only given you a purpose, he's made you worthy and he's given you worth. God does not put his image on junk. God has looked at you and said, I value you you enough to give you my own image we've tarnished that image and we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks as we ask questions did god really say and i look at my own life and i say lord i I see where i failed to uphold the image you've placed on me but that does not diminish the fact that god has given us purpose and worth as being people created in his image 
God values life from conception all the way to death. There's no point in your life that God stops having a purpose for you. There's no point in your life that God stops valuing you as someone created in His image. And finally, I think it's really important for us to understand this last truth. God redeems life from conception to death. There is no point in your life that God does not desire your salvation. I don't have time to get into the the great details of why I believe this. I would love to have a further conversation with you. The Bible doesn't really answer the question, what happens to babies when they die? It doesn't give us a, a firm And when a baby dies, it does fill in the blank. But I believe with all of my heart that Scripture teaches, and I'll share with you briefly here, the Scripture teaches that the unborn child who is miscarried or aborted spends eternity with its Savior in heaven. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that all those children who are too young to comprehend and understand what salvation is, I believe with all my heart that God and His grace saves them. We have a longer conversation about that, but let me share with you two verses that I put together to to come to that conclusion. First is the idea in Romans chapter 1 that you and I, as human beings, sitting and listening to the Word of God right now, looking at creation, are able to see God's divine attributes, and it says specifically, we have no excuse. Look at this, Romans 1.20. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that He has made so that they are without excuse. You and I have no excuse because we can see God's created world. If we never hear anything from the Bible that doesn't make us free from our own sin because we can see the created world and understand God created it with a purpose and we need to find that creator. That phrase, they were without excuse, is really important in our understanding that God holds us accountable because he's revealed himself to us in a way that you and I can understand. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we find... God talking to the Israelites and punishing them for their lack of faith. They go into the the land that God has promised them and come back and say, we can't do it, we can't conquer it, we're not going to make it in there. And God says, you know what? You're not going to make it in there because of your lack of faith. The next generation will go in. And the reason why he says the next generation is able to go in is because they don't understand the sin that's being committed. Look with me in Deuteronomy 1.39. As for your little ones who you said will become prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there into the land, and to them I will give it, and they will possess. Look what God says about the children of Israel. They have no knowledge of good or evil. Are they little sinners? I've got a three-year-old to say, yes, they are. But does God hold them accountable the same way he holds you and I accountable? It seems to me, at least in this case, in the nation of Israel, he does not. He chooses to save them. Now, are they saved because they're innocent? No, they are sinners. They're saved because Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his blood has paid for their sins. They're saved because Jesus Christ offers salvation to those whom he desires. And he desires to save the young and the unborn. God's redemption is present and clear, even at conception with the unborn. I believe that with all my heart. I think it's equally important to remind ourselves that when you and I know our actions, when we understand good and evil, God still desires our redemption. 
there's still a plan and a path. I'm very well aware as I look into the sanctuary this morning, as I think about those watching online, I'm very aware, very keenly aware, that there are women who are probably watching this who are brokenhearted because they have, they have sinned in regards to the unborn. I've talked and I've prayed with women brokenhearted over abortions they've had, sometimes forced, sometimes on their own desires. They, they listen to a sermon like this and they're, they're crushed with the weight of guilt. And can I tell you this morning, God's desire is not to crush you with guilt, but to redeem you and to save you. Maybe you're in here and abortion has not been your great sin, but you have this understanding that, God, I'm just not worthy. I don't feel your presence in my life. I don't understand your salvation. Can I tell you that God's plan of redemption begins from the moment you were conceived and he has a will and a plan that you are saved even today. There is forgiveness and grace. 1 John 1.9 gives us this promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that God does not redeem and forgive. Not a one. There's redemption and forgiveness in the God who created you and has a purpose for you. He loves and cares for you enough that he would die on the cross so that you could experience redemption in him. Does God really say that life begins at conception? I, I would say the Bible doesn't clearly denote that. It seems to me like God has a purpose for you long before. But is every conceived human being made in the image of God and worthy of protection? Absolutely. Is every human being made in the image of God, whether they are in the womb or whether they've been walking on this earth for a hundred years, are all of them are all of them made in God's image and able to be redeemed from their sin? Absolutely, they can. This morning, I would hope and ask that you would pray and examine your own heart. Do I understand the great love that God has for me as being created in His image, redeemed by the blood of Christ? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for clearly showing us in Scripture, not just that you value the unborn, but that you value humanity. Father, you did not die for plants and animals. You died to redeem human beings and forgive them of their sins. Lord, I thank you that you value and protect the unborn, and equally, Lord, that you value and protect me made in your image. Lord, I ask that you would continue to show me grace and forgiveness, redeem me, as I continually to fall short day after day. Lord, I praise you that your promises, there is no sin, there is no action that I can take that is beyond your redemption. So, Lord, we ask you to forgive us today. We ask that you would show us how we can have a right relationship with you. We fall before you and plead with you to save us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.